Imagine you are on the receiving end of this letter from your daughter who has been away at college. Dear Mom and Dad, since I left for college, I have been remiss in writing, and I am sorry about my thoughtlessness and not, and not having written before. Allow me to bring you up to date, but before I do, please sit down. Are you sitting down? It is very important that you sit down before you continue to read this letter. I'm getting along pretty well now that the skull fracture and concussion I got when I jumped out of the window to escape the fire that had erupted in my dormitory have pretty much healed. I only get those sick headaches a couple of times a day. Fortunately, the fire in my dormitory and my frantic jump were witnessed by a gas station attendant. He ran over, took me to the hospital, and continued to visit me there. When I got out of the hospital, I had no place to live because of the burnt-out condition of my room. So he was kind enough to invite me to share his basement bedroom apartment with him. It's sort of small, but cozy and very cute. He's a very fine young man, and we have fallen deeply in love, and we are planning on getting married. We haven't set the exact date yet, but it will be before my pregnancy begins to show. Yes, Mom and Dad, I am pregnant. I know how much you are looking forward to being grandparents, and I know you will welcome the baby and give it the same tender care and devotion you gave to me when I was a child. In conclusion, now that I have brought you up to date, I want to tell you that there was no dormitory fire. I did not have a concussion or a skull fracture. I was not in the hospital. I am not pregnant, and there is no boyfriend in my life. However, I have failed history and science. And I wanted you to see these events in their proper perspective. I want to suggest to you this morning that a proper perspective transforms our understanding. And I want to exhort you to pursue the proper perspective that you should have of one another, which is in Christ. And so we're going to dive back into the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians this morning and continue discussing what it means to be the church. I want to exhort you to see others as God does, to see from the divine perspective. And I think that we'll understand one another from the divine perspective when we recognize that it's not only God who calls us to himself and saves us to himself and sets us on mission for the glory of himself, but he also empowers us. He empowers us through prayer, through his spiritual gifts, and through his promise. And when we see one another as being in Christ, we will see that we really can be the church together that we can be exactly who God has called us to be, holy saints. Let's pray, set the stage a little bit, and we'll get started. Lord Jesus, quiet our thoughts that distract from you. Focus our hearts on your word. Make us submissive to your word. Set your Holy Spirit thick upon this assembly, we ask, that we might learn what it is you have for us to learn. 
Give us clarity of thought. Give me clarity of speech. Help us to hear what you have to say. Father, fan into flame our affections for you once more again this morning. Make our passion for the Lord Jesus white hot. Father, stir our feelings of love for you even as we read your word. And begin doing it now. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so to set the stage a little bit, like we did last week, we've entered into the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've said that the Corinthian church is a hot mess, for lack of a better term. They are suing one another. They have a guy that is sleeping with his stepmother in their midst. They are bickering and fighting. They're saying, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos. There is division, and there is utter just disunity. They do not look like the people of God. And so Chloe's people have reported this fact to Paul, and he has, is writing in response to that report as well as a letter that he's received. And so as he opens the letter, what we expect is for Paul to immediately start correcting them, to immediately start scolding them, but that's not what we find. We see in the middle of this tense situation that Paul speaks with this letter with words of grace. He begins by reminding the Corinthians of who they are in Christ before telling them what they need to be. The imperative will flow from the indicative. And so we see in the first three verses, just to rehearse what we unpacked last week together, Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To to just summarize really quickly, Paul is saying, we have all been called to Christ and called to very specific locations and um, vocations in life. You are called to be holy. I am called to be holy. I'm called to be holy as an apostle, and you are called to be God's holy people in Corinth. He's calling this probably the worst church in the New Testament. He's saying, you are saints. You are God's people. And so at this point, for for me, if I'm I'm reading along through 1 Corinthians, I expect Paul to now plunge into those scorning rebukes, the scorching correction. But that's not what we read in verse 4. We read, I always thank my God for you, Because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus. What? I mean, I expect stop being stupid, right? Stop bickering, stop fighting, be united. But that's not what Paul says. He says, I always thank God for you. I mean, this is a people that is questioning Paul's very apostleship. They're pitting him against other teachers. I'm thankful for you? I mean, if I was Paul, this is not what I would write. How can Paul be thankful for this just terribly messy group of people? I think it's because he has a divine perspective of them. He does not see them for their sin, but for who they are in Christ. Therefore, he's always able to give thanks for them, 
The word always there doesn't mean that he never stops giving thanks for them, right? He, he is just in the regular habit of thanking God for this people. He sees that God is at work among them. And so he's able to write verse 4, and this time I'm going to read down through verse 9. I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus, that by him you were enriched in everything, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony of Christ is confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you will be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by Him into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul knows that God is the one that has called the Corinthians to himself. He's called them to be the church. And he knows that God is the one who will empower them to be the church despite their present condition. Paul knows their end. They will be glorified together with Christ because their faith is genuine. Paul is not thinking of them in light of their sin, but in light of their union with Jesus. And so he can't help but give thanks for them. When you see other Christians in light of their union with Jesus, you will be able to see that God is at work in their lives. And as a result, you're not going to be able to help but give thanks for them. Friends, we need to allow God's perspective of our brothers and sisters to transform our perspective of them. We need to learn to say thanks for our messy fellowship. I think especially when we feel that friction of rubbing elbows together all the time. All those little family disputes. I think especially we need to learn to give thanks and see God at work in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our conflict. What I mean is this. When you have a brother or sister in Christ who is in need of loving correction, as, as the Corinthians do here, I think we do well to follow Paul's example and to look at them through Jesus' eyes to look for evidences of grace in each other's lives. Look for what the Holy Spirit is guiding and directing them and using them for. I mean, find something in one another to give thanks for. Friends, gratitude for one another and encouragement of one another should go hand in glove with our correction of one another. If you can't see evidence of grace in another Christian, if you cannot give thanks for them, then you are in sin. We must see Christ in one another. If you can't see evidences of grace in others, you may have a big log in your own eye that you need to remove before you correct someone else. If someone that you are correcting, someone that is walking in sin, is a brother and sister in Christ, that means that God has purchased them and that God is at work in them. And if you are not seeing that, you are not seeing the most important thing about them. God is at work in all those who bear the name of Christ, and he will bring that work to completion. Paul reminds us of that fact in Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work within you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, until the day of Christ Jesus. 
And he writes the same thing here just a few verses later. He says confidently about the Corinthians. He, that's God, will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by Him into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Paul knows the most important thing about the Corinthians is that God is at work in them and that their faith is in Jesus Christ. And so he is able to give thanks for them and encourage them, even though they seem to be a mess and in need of correction. He knows that they need affirmation before their correction. So let me ask you, are you more aware of God's grace and gift and call in other people's lives, or are you more aware of their deficiencies? There's an old comic strip, and I'm going to mess this up because I didn't write it down, but uh, C.J. Mahaney shared this. Uh, there's an old comic strip of the Peanuts. You all know the Peanuts, right? And I think, it's, I think it's Lucy and Linus. I'm not really sure about the names. But, but in frame number one, it's just got Lucy and Linus sitting. Lu- Linus is on the chair, and Lucy is just standing behind the chair staring at him. Right? She's just looking him down. In the next frame, Linus says, What? And then in the final frame, uh, Lucy says to Linus, I don't know what it is. I just look at you and I can feel a criticism coming on. When you think of the people in this church, do you become encouraged thinking of evidences of grace or do you feel a criticism coming on? Do you see blemishes, areas that need growth, or do you see God at work? I wonder, when was the last time that you attended this gathering with the edification of others as your primary concern? Seeing others as God sees them will transform your attitude towards them. Instead of seeing other church members in light of their sin, we must see them in light of the righteousness of Christ because that is who they are. Christians are not their sin. They are the bride of Jesus. And look around. These are those who have been called by God, who are sanctified in Jesus Christ and called saints with all who believe. If you want to see the righteousness of Christ, look at your neighbor. These brothers and sisters are those who have been declared holy by God and are being made holy by God's Holy Spirit. This family, this fellowship is made up of those who have holiness as both their aim and their destiny. God is at work here. Let's not be blind to his work. Let's not be blind to the most important thing about each and every one of us. That truth that God the Holy Spirit dwells within us and is urging us on towards Christ-likeness. Let us become experts at finding evidences of grace in one another's lives rather than experts of critique. I think Paul models this for us and also shows us how we can develop a clear vision of one another. 
I would argue it's through prayer that we will most properly see one another. Prayer empowers us to be the church in our vision and in our treatment of one another because it helps us to see one another in the proper context, which is in Christ. And so we ought to pray for one another, to give thanks for one another, to rejoice of what God is doing in each member of this fellowship. I think one of the great benefits of being a Christian and being saved into this community called the church is that we get to assure one another of our salvation and help one another walk out the implications of our salvation. I mean, in in membership, we're, we're saying, my life is everyone else's business and everyone else's life is my business. We, we take responsibility for one another. We take responsibility for bearing one another's burdens, for ensuring that we are protecting the name of Jesus, which we represent, and that we are growing in grace. It is in, in membership as a church together that we lean into the promises of God. It is in membership that we together resolve to strive to reach the lost and equip them to join with us in the process of becoming more mature and ministering worshipers of God. And our prayers are crucial to our health as a church. It's crucial for our increase in holiness, in unity, and in love because prayer is the primary means by which that we will experience the riches of the gospel. In prayer, we meet with God and His Spirit shapes our hearts after His own. I wonder, are you praying for God's work in one another? Are you you giving thanks for what God is doing here? Do you pray? Imagine you were diagnosed with a lethal condition and the doctor told you that Each day, you had a particular pill that you had to take at some point during the day, uh, probably before you go to sleep. And and if you didn't take that pill, if you missed just one dose, that you would die. Would you forget? I mean, would you just not get around to it some nights? No. It would be crucial that you didn't forget. And so you would never miss it. Friends, if we do not pray, our spiritual lives will wither. We will not make it because we are facing a great enemy and death is his work. If we refuse to pray, our intimacy and our awe of God will fade and flicker out. We've been given the supreme privilege of calling upon God as our Father, speaking with Him as our friend. Do not squander this privilege. We've been empowered to be the people of God, to see the church as God sees it through prayer. And so pray. Encourage one another. I mean, why not send an encouraging note to someone this afternoon? Call their attention to evidences of grace that you've seen in their lives. Why not tell them how you are thanking God because of how he is at work in them? And and do notice that Paul is thanking God for the gifts that the Corinthians have received from him. You see that verse verse 4 again? I always thank who? My God for you. 
because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus, that by him you were enriched in everything, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've done your homework and you've read through uh, 1 Corinthians a time or two, you know that one of the major issues Paul is going to address is the misuse of spiritual gifts in this church. And so it's quite remarkable that here on the front end of his letter, he's thanking God for the very things that are causing him consternation. He's thanking God for the very gifts that the Corinthians are abusing. He's saying, you are misusing these gifts but I still thank God that he's given them to you. I still thank God that he is redeeming them, even in the midst of your misuse of them. God is at work in this people, and it is a constant occasion for thanksgiving and gratitude. Paul specifically points out speech and knowledge because the Corinthians valued these two gifts above all the others, and we'll talk about that more as we work through the letter. Uh, But for now, I, I want us to recognize that Uh, It's the means of thanksgiving that Paul utilizes to redirect the confidence of the Corinthians away from themselves, away from their gifts, and to Christ. Simply by giving thanks to God in this introduction, Paul puts the attention on God and reminds the Corinthians that they have been empowered by God. That everything they have is by His grace alone. And it's His grace that gives them all that they need. By Him you were enriched in every way. Do you think of yourself as being enriched in every way? This is, this is the most corrupt bunch of Christians that we see in the Bible. And they don't lack anything. They are enriched in every way. And so are we. According to 2 Peter 1.3, you have all things that pertain to life and godliness. We are complete in Christ, Colossians 2.10 tells us. Friends, in Christ, we have everything we could ever want or ever need. We have been enriched in every way that we might live truly godly lives and pursue holiness. God has given us everything. He's given you everything you need. I think too many of us act as as children who are never content with the toy that they have. They're always wanting another. Always want what somebody else has. God gives us innumerable blessings, but instead of counting them, we covet the blessing of another. Friends, in Christ you have all that you need and more. We, We are the wealthiest people on the planet because we've been reconciled to God. The riches received upon belief in the gospel of Jesus are incomparable to the measly riches of the world. In Christ, you have been enriched in everything. I wonder, when will everything be enough for you? When will Jesus be enough to make you content? The spiritual gifts of the Corinthian church and of our church are meant to function to the end of confirming the gospel among us, bringing us encouragement, and bringing attention ultimately to Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit is at work among us and has gifted us so that we might build one another up and that we might recognize the beauty of Christ. What gifts has God given you to encourage one another? Look for opportunities to exhort one another, to use your gifts to the building up of God's church and to the glory of Christ. God has given us everything we need to be his holy people. He empowers us to be the church through prayer and through spiritual gifts as well as through his promise and we must see this about one another. Verse 6, in this way the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You are called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Why does the promise of God empower us? Because God does what he says he will. Because God is faithful. Because God's strength is stronger than the grip of death. God's strength is greater than sin's curse. And this is why Paul speaks of our glorification as if it's already happened in Romans 8, right? He says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. God's word accomplishes what he says it will. The promise of God empowers us to be the church because it makes our hope certain. Our hope does not fail. And what that means for you, struggling Christian, is that God will do what He has said He will do in your life. God will keep you. He called you and He will keep you. So do not despair. Pick up on that imagery in Romans 8 once more for, for the third week in a row because I think it's right. It's that imagery of childbirth and of groaning. Just as a child coming out of the womb cries and is confused by the cold and the blood and is exhausted from his struggle and he's trying to make sense of an upside-down world, so too do we wait for Jesus' return, experiencing feelings of our affections going cold, having been confused by our pain, overwhelmed by our exhaustion from our struggle against sin. We, we felt as if our lives had been flipped upside down and we've had our faces wet with tears. But just as a loving mother assures her newborn baby with words of comfort, the Father assures us of our destiny. He tells us, he's a struggling Christian, I know that it's cold. I know you are tired. I know everything seems upside down but let me wipe your tears. You can trust me. Everything that is happening is happening for you. I love you, and I will keep you safe. Indeed, God is working all things together for our good and for his glory. We're not able to always make sense of this wonderful truth, but we are always able to trust the Father. Just as a child is unable to make sense of the truth that there are not monsters under his or her bed, 
but is able to trust the Father and hold his hand and walk into the dark room. The Father holds your hand, struggling Christian, and he walks with you through the darkness, through the valley of the shadow of death, so that you might know he does not fail. He succeeds, and he will get you to the end of the race. He will sustain you all the way through heaven's gates. Struggling Christian, God loves you in your struggles. And he will be faithful to keep you in Christ. The God who has called you into relationship with himself through Jesus will keep you safe in Jesus. One of the wonderful parts about that is that throughout our whole lives now, even in the midst of struggling, even in the midst of lost, is that we get to participate in the family of God as sons forever. I mean, look at verse 9. God is faithful. You were called by Him into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Fellowship with His Son. What, what we share together is not primarily one another's company, though we do share that. We, we, we share fellowship in Christ, a communal participation in the family of God. You understand, like, together we are experiencing the love that God has for His Son because we are participating in the sonship of Jesus. I mean, that, that should knock your socks off. That God allows us to be in relationship with Him as sons and daughters. I mean, don't, don't get over being utterly astounded by this. You share in the Trinitarian love of God. I mean, realize the magnitude of the fellowship to which you have been called. Be reminded that the Christian brother or sister who sits next to you is also called and secured in that same fellowship of the Son. This should change your perspective of one another. It is empowering to know that God will strengthen you and this church to the end so that we will be blameless or guiltless when Jesus returns to make everything sad untrue. One might ask, how is it that we are blameless How is it that we get to communally participate in the life of God as sons? How is it that we get to have this great privilege of being called to Christ, called to be His church, empowered to be His church? Why why do we get enriched in every way? Why? Grace. But when we wanted nothing to do with God, he, He came to our rescue. When we were happy, to lie dead in our sins, God's Spirit came and made us alive so that we might rise and begin to truly live. Friend, God's grace, if you know Him, has changed your heart so that you would believe in the person and work of Jesus. God has empowered you to believe by His grace alone. Anyone who puts their faith in Christ is guiltless before God, blameless, Because the wrath that was due to us was poured out on Him. And the blessing due to Him was given to us. This is what it means to be enriched in every way. All that is Jesus becomes ours. It is as if He won the Congressional Medal of Honor. And God turns and puts it on your neck. Why? 
Because God is generous. Because he's awesome. Because he's full of grace. And he pours his grace out upon us lavishly. Like a strawberry on one of those chocolate fountains. Just get covered in chocolate. We are covered in God's grace. His kindness, his unmerited favor. That, that's all that keeps us in him. I mean, if you're an employee and, and the week gets done or weeks or however often you get paid and, and you don't get a paycheck, you, you, or when you receive the paycheck, you don't go to your boss and say, oh, my boss, you have extended love that is beyond me. You've been so gracious to me to give me this paycheck. I thank you. I thank you. No. If you work for your paycheck and your check doesn't show up, you say, where's the money? Why? Because your paycheck isn't grace. It's something you've earned. God's grace is not earned like a paycheck. It is given as an unsolicited, undeserved, unthinkable gift. All you have to do to receive it is put your faith in Christ. And once you receive that gift of God, once God acts in grace, grace is never able to recognize guilt. So, so once you're forgiven and, and have received saving grace, how much, how much guilt do you have? None! Grace can't coexist with human guilt. So mark it down. In Christ, you are blameless. When God saved you, he took away all guilt and all sin, forgave all your sins and failures for his name's sake, all of them. If you are a Christian, grace reigns in your life, not sin. In Christ, your past is forgiven, your present is taken care of, and your future is guaranteed. God saves us from our sins, past, present, and future sustains us with his strength and secures us for life together with him. And so it is through the Holy Spirit, by faith, we are able to eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. I wonder, do you eagerly wait for the return of Jesus? My family and I went to Disney in December recently, and I was super, super excited to ride something called Splash Mountain. Uh, Splash Mountain's a, a great, it's like a story and a ride all in one. Uh, Briar Rabbit escapes the evil clutches of this fox that's like trying to mess up his life and I think kill him, I'm not, maybe eat him, I'm not really sure. Uh, but uh, you go through the whole ride, it's a water ride, you're kind of on this boat thing, and then at the very end, kind of the climax of the deal is the fox is going to catch Briar Rabbit, but Briar Rabbit jumps into the briar patch and escapes. And you go down through these kind of artificial looking briars or thorns, kind of like a thorn bush, and it's just a great plunge. And water goes up everywhere, and you get wet, and everybody smiles and laughs. It's a great deal. So anyhow, I'm really excited about riding Splash Mountain. Uh, we had planned on going to Disney for a couple months, and this was like the main thing I wanted to do. So I've got my um, oldest boy, Elliot, with me, and we're, we're walking up. We're going to get on Splash Mountain, and he's not tall enough. Even though he's standing under the, those little, like, things they have that hang out like this, you know what I'm saying? And his head is, like, right here, like this. Like, his hair is touching the top. And we've got uh, paper towels stuffed in his shoes the, the second time around. <laughs> We're just like, he grows. He's tall enough. Uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't admit him to the ride. 
And I, I was devastated. I mean, sinfully so. I, I sulked a good bit. Uh, it was funny because Elliot, was, he was cool with it. He was like, don't worry, next time I'll be tall enough, Daddy, and maybe we can ride it then. And I'm like, got tears. <laughs> like, like, it was just not right. But, but my point is, I, I'm eagerly awaiting the day we're, we're going to get on Splash Mountain one day, I hope. I hope he gets taller. But as much as I eagerly anticipated riding Splash Mountain with my son, I was disappointed. I was disappointed. And here's my point. We have a habit of waiting for lesser pleasures with more joy than we wait for the return of Jesus. Does that make sense? I mean, there's a period of time in my life, if I'm being honest, I think I was looking forward to Splash Mountain more than the return of Christ, if I'm honest with myself. And that is sinful and stupid. You can probably think of plenty of things that you've looked forward to that disappointed you. Just like Splash Mountain disappointed me. But the return of Jesus is not like that. It exceeds expectations. It will be more thrilling than anything in all of this world. And so, friends, we should wait for the return of Christ as a child waits for Christmas morning. I mean, we should wait for the return of Jesus just like nerds wait for the coming out or the release of the next Star Wars film, right? It should be exciting. Because when Jesus returns, he's going to put everything in its proper order. He's going to redeem everything. He's going to make everything sad untrue. And this perfect peace is certain. And we are those who will be strengthened and kept by God for this. How can we not long for it? I think we'll only long for Jesus' return if we get a proper perspective of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do through the gospel. And I think we get a picture of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do through the gospel when we take a look at one another and what he's doing in our midst. You see, from this divine perspective, we can see that we are God's holy people who have been called to God's holy purpose and empowered to that purpose. We can see that He will strengthen us, that He will keep us as His holy people so that we might enjoy the infinite pleasures that are in His presence. Not for a day, not for a moment, not for an hour, but forevermore. Oh, friends, let's be the church. Let's start sampling a foretaste of this great feast that is to come upon Jesus' return by plunging ourselves into fellowship with one another. Reminding one another of the promises of the gospel. Reminding one another of the evidences of grace we see in each other's lives. Let's resolve to draw upon the power that has been given to us through prayer, through the use of our spiritual gifts, and through the promise of God. Looking to that promise, eagerly waiting for its fulfillment. I hope that you've already tasted of it and have seen that God is good. My prayer is that together we would trust him to carry us on to the end, into glory. 
Let's see from the divine perspective just what it is God is doing in and among us. It is amazing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are those who have been made guiltless by grace through faith. We are those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called saints along with all those in every place who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that even though there's nothing good in us, that you chose to love us. We thank you that despite our sin, you continue to love us. We thank you that even though we're a messy people, you don't look at us and scold constantly, but you wrap us in your arms and affirm us, whisper in our ears, I love you, my beloved son. Father, we thank you that your love is unfailing, that you love us on our most holy of days and on our most unholy of days that we need never to flee from your presence or to sulk in the shame of sin because we've been hidden in the life of Christ by faith. And that when you look at us, you see nothing but beautiful sons in whom you take great delight. We thank you that you sing over us. Oh God, you are so good. Help us to marvel at what you're doing here. It is with the utmost gratitude we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.